Tonight is Tuesday, April 27th, and we are studying There is a Solution. Um, thank you, Kim G. from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, for speaking on the chapter tonight. Kim. Thanks, Amy. Hi, everyone. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from the South Jersey area. Um, I've been in OA since 1990, uh, 1996, no, no, 1994, um, but my abstinence and I've been recovered since January 2011. So you can see there's a little bit of difference there. So these step one chapters are really important to me. Um, I really love the chapter There's a Solution because you know, my personal history is I, my top size was a size 24. My bottom size was a size two. And I've also been a size, I currently am a size 10 binging and purging and over-exercising. So I really thought food and weight was my problem. Um, and if that was true, I've lost weight and gotten to a healthy body weight multiple times. My problem did not go away. I've gotten abstinent hundreds of times. My problem did not go away. So it was really the education of these chapters, the, you know, the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there's a solution more about alcoholism that told me the truth that gave me the urgency, the urgency to get through the rest of the steps. It was not willingness that had me do the steps. It was desperation that had me do the steps. And this is one of those chapters. So the chapter, I, the way I look at it is basically divided into two sections. And the first half, which is pages 17 to 24 is all about the problem. And the rest of it is actually about the solution because a big part of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. And this, this chapter is gonna teach me about what it means to be a real compulsive overeater. So I'm gonna start on page 20, um, if you guys have your big books. So there's this third paragraph down, it talks about these questions. And these are not questions that as a compulsive overeater, I would ask another compulsive overeater. These are the questions, the frothy emotional appeal that Dr. Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion of people who love us, care for us, ask us because it's their experience. You know, the way I heard it described beautifully was that people looked at me and saw what the food was doing to me and didn't understand why I was doing it. I knew what the food was doing for me and I didn't know why the hell they weren't doing it. So when I heard these questions, like, you know, um, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you eat like a lady? That fellow, I'm sorry, my dog's whining in the background. I hope it's not too distracting for you. That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. So this is the people that tell me, you know, why don't you just eat the diabetic candy? You know, why don't you just go to the, go to the restaurant, cut it in half and only eat half? Why don't you put your, on the refrigerator, the picture of your favorite celebrity. And then you're, if you want to look like that celebrity, then you're not going to open up the refrigerator. Um, you know, uh, his willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to, that, that really hurt my feelings. And believe me, I have willpower in other areas of my life, but when it came to my food, I didn't. And it was absolutely baffling to me. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is all lit up again. You know, I remember being told, you know, Kim, I know you want to go to the prom. If he just lost a little bit of weight, maybe a guy would ask you to the prom. I wanted to go to the prom more than anything, but I didn't know how to stop eating. So once again, not knowing part of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. What I have found with this moderator and this heavy eater is look at parts of my life where I am moderate, look at parts of my life where I am heavy, and then I can compare that with my experience with the food. So for example, with these questions, I happen to be a moderate shopper. 
And, you know, I, I don't know where you're all from, but Costco is a huge thing in my area, you know, those big box stores and people complain all the time. They spend too much money there. And as a moderate shopper, I have great advice. You know, why don't you write up, write down what you're going to buy at Costco and just don't buy anything off your list, you know, or set a dollar amount and say, you know, when I go to Costco, I'm not going to don't spend any more than a hundred dollars and you can spend on whatever you want and you're fine. Or if Costco is that big of a problem, why don't you just go to Costco once a month? Why are you going every week? And that makes total sense to me because I am the moderate shopper. I can take it or leave it alone. If I flip that, what have people asked me? Kim, why don't you just write your food down and just don't eat off of what you wrote down? Or Kim, there's this diet program that counts points. You can have whatever you want. Just don't go above that point level. Or if Kim, if, if pizza is that much of a problem for you, why don't you just have it once a month and treat yourself? And then you don't have to have it the rest of the month. And I look at them like they have three heads because I can't do that when it comes to food, yet I can do it easily when it comes to, 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 um, to, to shopping. So that's the moderate, take it or leave it alone. Maybe go a little crazy. I go a little crazy around Christmas time buying presents. And then I just curb back on my, on my spending. And by February, I'm back to where my normal savings account is. And I can go on with my day. Then they talk about this heavy eater. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the Shanti stop, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative. This man can also stop or moderate although he may find it difficult and troublesome and he may even need medical attention. So personally, I am the heavy drinker. I happened to, I never had a drink till I went to college. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. I could probably go to any AA meeting and tell a damn good AA story because I have a lot of consequences from my drinking. However, at the age of 27, I was at a bar with a friend. She was more drunk than me being the good friend. I'm going to drive her home. And I went the wrong way down a highway and almost killed us both. And it scared me so much that I never drank again. I did not need the steps. I did not need a fellowship. I am sure if I was caught that night, the cops would have told me I was an alcoholic. The judge probably would have told me I was an alcoholic because of my history with alcohol. But I'm not because given sufficient reason, almost killing my friend, I was able to stop. And I, I and you know, the big thing for me is moderate. Anybody who's in OA who says they can moderate their binge foods is not a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book. I had a conversation with the newcomer today where her sponsor was telling her to, telling her to start sponsoring, brought her through the steps while she was still eating, told her that she just got to, she has to start sponsoring and, and stop beating herself up if she has sugar once in a while. That's not, that's an insane message in the rooms of alcohol, in, in rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. I cannot stop or moderate. This describes to me my baffledness when I would go with my binge buddies to an all-you-can-eat buffet and they would get the diagnosis of diabetes and they would be able to stop eating and they would be okay. Or maybe their husband came to them and threatened to divorce them because they put on so much weight after their first kid and they lose the weight and they're fine. They're not a compulsive overeater of the type described in this book and it's not a compulsive overeater of the type that I have, that I am. So let's look at page 24, and that's going to tell us what the real compulsive overeater looks like. So that first, sec, first full paragraph on page 24, which is in the uh, italicized writing, and it's going to tell me three things here, that I have no choice, no willpower, and no memory. 
Now, if I went to a rehab today, the first question they're going to ask me is what's my drug of choice? And if I was being honest, I could say alcohol because I drank alcoholically and then I chose not to drink anymore. Personally, I smoked pot in college, but I stopped because the fear of getting arrested scared the heck out of me. So I had a choice with that. I have chosen not to eat and I continue to eat over and over and over. It is my drug of no choice. I lost the will, the power of choice and drink. I, there are so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. I've shared this a couple of times in the last couple of weeks because it's a memory that came back to me that I have forgotten about. Because like I said, I have willpower in a lot of areas in my life. I actually got my master's degree in relapse. Now I was, you know, very insecure when I went back to school. I've been out of school for 20 years. All the kids are like half my age. And I went to Ryder University and there was, it's an old, old school. So it was a three-story building that had no, um, uh, elevator. And what I used to do is I would walk up a flight of stairs and pretend I lost something or couldn't find something in my backpack to sit there and shuffle with stuff because I had to get my breath before I went to the next floor. And then I pretended I forgot something in. But by the, when I got to that third floor, I graduated with a 3.9. So I could make some crap happen, but I couldn't stop eating to the point I couldn't even walk up three flights of stairs to even get to the class that I would ace the test in. It says we are unable at certain times. So this is what would confuse me. I mean, this is my experience again. And I realize now that I, I disrespected a 12-step program the first 17 years in OA by not working the 12 steps. You know, my, when I would say I was in and out of program, really what it was is I was in and out of the fellowship. And my program was people's opinions and slogans. So I would come into the rooms and I would get some, hear the fellowship and you guys would love me and you'd cheer me on. And I would get some abstinence underneath my belt and then I would pick up and I'd come back crying and you would say, well, what happened, Kim? And I would tell you what was going on. Oh, I know what it is. You're not going to enough meetings. Oh, okay. So I would go to more meetings and then I would pick up. And then I, I come back crying and you say, oh, no, no, you're not making enough phone calls. And I would make more phone calls. And you, the, what confused me is at certain times, going to a meeting worked. At certain times, it didn't. At certain times, making a phone call worked. At certain times, it didn't. And what happens when you don't answer the phone? What happens when a pandemic hits and you can't get to meetings? Like my program needed to be based on the 12 steps, but the at certain times confused me. With sufficient memory that the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, I couldn't remember between breakfast and lunch. You know, I remember in college, I worked at a 7-Eleven and I was gaining weight incredibly. And I it was early morning. The other girl person didn't show up for the shift. I had this long line and I reached down to get some cigarettes for somebody and my pants split right down the middle. And I had to call my father to have him bring me pants. And then my dad had to stand at the register and tell him to hold it while I went to the bathroom and changed my pants. It was humiliating. And I thought to myself, I will never eat again. I was eating within two days. You know, I love all these podcasts and I hear some horrific stories from people and I thought that would stop me. But I got to tell you, if my own war stories aren't going to stop me, what makes me think anybody else's will too? And I was without defense against the first drink. See, I always thought it was the third donut. I didn't come into OA to stop eating pizza. I came into OA so you could tell me how not to have the third slice of pizza. And what I had to understand is this allergy was that I cannot have that first bite because it's a biological reaction. 
to me, it was like saying, hi group, I'm allergic to strawberries and break out in a rash. Could you please teach me after I eat strawberries, how to not break out in the rash? That's insane. And the biggest part is this mental twist, which is gonna convince me that I can eat the strawberries and not break out in a rash. So that's what it means to be the real compulsive overeater. So if we go to page 25 and the ongoing joke is, if you wanna hide something from an alcoholic, put it in the big book, they'll never look there. So they hid the solution in a chapter called There's a Solution. And they put it in squiggly writing at the top of 25 so you don't see it. And it says, there is a solution almost none of us liked. That alone blew my mind. I don't know about you all, but I was told to get comfortable in OA. I was told to go to six meetings, get comfortable in your absence, and then work the steps. If I could get comfortable in my abstinence, I don't need the steps. So I didn't like it. They didn't like it. I'm still going to get a benefit out of it. To me, it's like, I want to run a 5K and I get on the elliptical every day. It doesn't matter whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood or I'm in willing or not willing. The, the, the action of being on the treadmill is going to give my legs the muscle tone to be able to run that 5K. So here's the solution. The self-searching, which is step four. The leveling of our pride, which is steps five, six, and seven. And the confession of shortcomings, which is eight and nine. So the solution is four through nine, which we implement in 10 and 11. So steps one through nine get us unblocked and step 10 and 11 keep us unblocked. And that inventory process is what allows that mental twist to be taken away by a power greater than ourselves. And it says here, which the process requires for a successful consummation. And I, I'll tell you, I use that loophole. It, everything is a suggestion. Everything is a suggestion. I remember seeing a meme on, on Facebook about a year ago. It said, I'm sorry you're not getting the promises from the work that you're not willing to do. So this, it is suggested, but if you want successful consummation, there's gonna be some requirements and you're gonna see the word all, and you're gonna see the word never, and you're gonna see the word always, and you're gonna see the word constantly. Because if you want successful consummation, I have had 10 years of contented abstinence. Why? because I, I, I do the requirements of this book. So we turn to page 26. We're introduced to a certain American businessman and this is Roland Hazard and I love Roland Hazard. Roland Hazard busts me on my BS, man. Now this guy, think about historically, it's the 1930s, it's the Great Depression, 25% unemployment rate, people are waiting in bread lines and here's Roland Hazard. Family comes from money, old money, political money, influential money. They love their son and they find they do anything for him. In fact, one time they paid for someone to be on a deserted island with their son and he stayed there a year and stayed sober. The day he got back, he ate. Kind of reminds me today, we have these sober companions that rich people have their kids come around. Like I, my kid won't do heroin if I pay a lot of money to have the sober companion with them. And the reason I love him is because I really thought my problem was I'm just not properly financed. You know, if I could have a personal chef, I could stay abstinent. If I could afford to go to that gym, I could stay abstinent. I came in in the 90s. I could be in that Dr. Phil house. Easy peasy. You know, if I could get on Biggest Loser and have Dolvet as a, as a coach, whew, I could definitely stay abstinent and in love. And but, you know, it, he had access to everything and he still, still kept drinking. 
So his parents go out and seek and they've exhausted all the psychiatrists in the US. And at the time, and I remember in the eighties when I, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And these were three guys that I studied. Everyone knows Sigmund Freud. And he had two students, Alfred Adler and Carl Jung. Well, Sigmund Freud didn't have any room. Alfred Adler didn't have any room, but they got Carl Jung. And it wasn't like, Miss Dr. Jung, can you evaluate our son? Let's get 1930s. They paid for him to live with Carl Jung in Switzerland. Not like he even could fly there. There's no flights at this point, right? So he goes and he lives with Carl Jung. And I love this line on the page 26, um, that first paragraph. Above all, he, this is a Roland, believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. I think a lot of us, for us, it's, I'm like, I've been a goal weight for two years. I know this stuff inside and out, no biggie. You know, I remember there was a book out in the 90s on addiction, and it's the most beautiful description of addiction. We used to pass it around, we dog-eared it, we highlighted it, we underlined it as we all continued to eat. Because understanding food addiction didn't conquer food addiction. So he, after that certain amount of time, Carl Young's like, I've taught you everything I can teach you. Go home. You know, and he's going to have to go from Switzerland, go to England through trains and go to a boat back to America. But he doesn't make it past Paris before someone asked him a deadly question. Excuse me, sir, would you like a drink? It's kind of like us going into McDonald's drive through You know, what's your order, ma'am? And what are you going to do? You're going to order. So he crawls back to Dr. Young on page 27, the second paragraph. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Now you notice he doesn't even mention his body, right? Because if all I had was an allergy, if I had a one fold illness, if, if it, my dog's gonna come in the camera pretty soon, I can tell you um, that if I had just had a one fold illness, if addiction was one fold, then, then rehabs would kick out a 100% recovery rate because they separate us from our food, our alcohol, our sex, our drugs, whatever that is. And we would have the clarity of mind to say, yeah, I don't want to do that. Once I'm a kid of the eighties, Nancy Reagan, just say no, would have cured me. Scared straight would have cured me. I heard an AA speaker say once, if you want to stop drinking, if that's your only problem, punch a cop. You'll stop drinking because you'll go to jail. But my problem is I have a mind that's going to tell me it's okay to go back to the drink. So he's saying that you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. And of course, he says, is there no exception? So for those of you who are familiar with Joe and Charlie, I'm going to read this next paragraph the way Joe and Charlie did. So I'm going to read every time I see a synonym for change, I'm going to say the word change. So it says here, yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to such cases as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have what have called vital spiritual experiences, change. To me, these occurrences are a phenomenon, change. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, and rearrangements, change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, change, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them, change. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement change within you. So my guess is we're going to have to change. So this ideas, emotions, and attitudes were once the guiding forces are suddenly cast to one side, 
What did we say the solution was? They told us the page before. It's, the, it's steps four through nine. So let's look at what that does. In step four and five, we look at our fears, our resentments, our sex conduct, and those get cast to one side. In six and seven, we identify what our defects are, that we're selfish, we're dishonest, we're self-seeking, we're frightened, and those get cast to one side. And then in eight and nine, we get rid of our guilt, shame, and remorse for how we've treated others, and that gets cast to one side. And by doing that, we get unblocked from that power. And that's when we get the daily reprieve. In order to stay on block, we have to continue this inventory process. So to finish up, I'm gonna go back to page 25. Why would we do this? Why would we do this uncomfortable, uncomfortable thing? You know, I, a spiritual teacher I love, she said the spiritual life isn't difficult, it's just different. And we don't like change. Think about this whole pandemic and how hard it was. We had to instantly change and we don't like that. So that last paragraph on 25 says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were. So I had to ask myself, do I believe I have this allergy to the body? I do believe I have this mental twist. Someone is not more alcoholic if they have seven DUIs versus no DUIs. I am not any more compulsive overeater from hundred pounds overweight. If I'm a yo-yo dieter up and down 20, 30 pounds, if I'm anorexic, if I'm bulimic, and if I'm bulimic, whether I'm doing laxatives, whether I'm throwing up and whether I'm doing exercise, I'm seriously alcoholic. I'm a garden variety compulsive overeater. Why? Because I have an allergy to the body and I have a mental twist. We believe there is no middle of the road solution. Before middle of the road, so, you know, before OA, it was getting that right boyfriend, joining that right gym, you know, paying for that right pay and way place. But even in OA, what was those middle of the road solutions? Meeting makers make it. You know, avoiding people, places, and things. Halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Getting the star sponsor. I remember one time knowing that I was going to stay abstinent because I'm a cheap SOB and I paid for brand name Tupperware. And I thought if I spend the money on brand name Tupperware, I'm definitely going to stay abstinent. Middle of the road solution. I'm in a position where life was becoming impossible. That to me is a bottom. I think too, too much, too often we do a bottom as a certain amount of weight we gained. It's a spiritual bankruptcy. I love Envision for You, how it says, I can't live with the food. I can't live without the food. And Bill's story, alcohol was my master. And that meant that food ruled my life and made every decision in my life, whether I was eating or whether I was not eating. If I was not eating, it was avoiding people, places, and things. If I was eating, it was getting to that. We passed through the region for which there was no return from human aid. We had but two alternatives. An alternative is different than choice. Choice, I can do it or not, alternatives. I'm going one way or the other. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. And this is what put the nail in the coffin for me. I always thought the intolerable situation was being in the food. And what was explained to me is the intolerable situation is being abstinent. Abstinent in the morning, abstinent in the afternoon, abstinent in the evening, day after day. That's a miserable way to live. And when I'm restless and I'm irritable and I'm discontent and I am so uncomfortable in my own skin, I only have two alternatives. One is to blot out the consciousness, which is to pick up the steps. And the other one is to seek spiritual help, which is to pick up the steps. So I'm either going to pick up the food or pick up the steps, pick up the food or pick up the steps. And gratefully, 10 years ago, I wanted spiritual help just a smidge more 
a smidge more than I wanted the food. And that's where real recovery began. So I'm, I'm gonna end it there. Thank you guys so much. I hope that this is helping you guys. I hope you're uncomfortable. I hope you're a little disturbed because that's where recovery begins too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us tonight um, on this chapter. Um, okay, we uh, will now open the meeting for questions or for three minute shares. As this is a big book study, sharing and questions should relate specifically to the chapter and step being studied this week. We ask you to accept this guideline in order to keep the meeting on track. If you'd like to share or ask a question, please raise your virtual hand, which is under reactions, or star nine if you're on the phone, and I'll call the raised hands in order. Again, we will stop the recording um, for 10 minutes of unrecorded shares if anybody wants to wait for that. Um, Eileen, timekeeper, would you please set a timer for three minutes for each share and announce when the time is up? And let me see, um, does anybody want to share or ask a question tonight? Oh, I see one in the chat. Oh, wait, here we go. Michelle M and then Elena R. Michelle, go ahead. Hi, everybody. My name is Michelle, a compulsive overeater from Chicago. Grateful to be here. Kim, I needed this today. I very much needed this. I loved everything that you shared and I took diligent notes. Um, one of the things I loved was disrespecting the program by not working the program, by not working the steps. You know, they're here for a reason. And I, I'm almost at 90 days. And this is the first time since coming to OA, I've been here for a couple of years where I'm working the steps, not just getting to meetings, not just calling people and having little chit chat, working the steps. And, um, I didn't amends today. I'm, I'm on step nine. I didn't amends and it was really, really hard and uncomfortable. Um, but that's not what I wanted to ask. I would love to ask a question. Um, I'm curious to know, how do you, um, what are some of the things that you do when you're finding you need to be picking up the steps and you're having that resistance to go with the disease. So for instance, an example of something I've been really struggling with is when I make a food amendment, like when I um, eat something differently than I sent to my sponsor, I'm supposed to send her over what I did um, or making sure I'm eating all of my food, not just the things that I want to eat on the plate. How do you work through that um, in real time versus letting the disease get away with it? Michelle, can I ask where you are in the steps? I know you said you're 90 days abstinent, but. I'm on step nine. Step nine, okay. So the only solution to that really is getting through the steps. Okay. That's what's gonna give us relief. Um, I'm a Catholic school kid and I heard something recently which really hit me was, you know, Jesus has these 12 disciples and some uh -huh. of the origin of the word disciple is discipline. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a follower of the 12 step program, I need to follow the disciplines of a 12-step program. I just, I just like that idea. So what I found yeah. for myself early in my recovery, especially when I'm going through the steps, is to have structure and okay. to have discipline. 
Um, because if you, for example, with phone calls, I was kind of like talking about phone calls, but if I'm making phone calls every day when I'm feeling okay, then when I start to feel restless, irritable, discontent, it's going to be natural for me to make that phone call. And I'm going to have people that I, that I, um, that I feel comfortable with, you know, early in my recovery, I, I looked at when am I most vulnerable for me, it was eight to 10 at night. So I tried to have extra structure around those days at night. Um, you know, I, I often suggest to my sponsees, and this is just Kim, not big book is not to be making a lot of changes with your food until you have neutrality around the food. You know, you don't want that chatter in your head. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? So, you know, this, a lot of the structure for me was on Sunday doing a lot of food prep. I personally weigh and measure getting it all in Tupperware. So I didn't have to make decisions every day. So my focus could be on my recovery. So I would just say, you know, having some structure around your day and having that so that when the times are tough, you can lean back on that structure. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for the question, Michelle. Next, we have Elena followed by Andre. Elena. Hi, everyone. I'm Elena. I'm a compulsive overeater, exercise bulimic, and restrictor. Um, so normally, I wouldn't speak because... Um, I'm just very intimidated by awesome people. <laughs> and Kim, uh, I just wanted to thank you for being such a huge part of my recovery. When I first came back to the rooms uh, about five months ago, it was your podcast that really got me through. Um, and it's just an honor to really talk to you right now. Um, so I have a question for you. Um, everything you said, I completely am feeling uncomfortable about. So I'm five months abstinent. I'm on step eight, but it almost feels like I'm on step one again. Cause I'm like, oh shit. Like, okay, I am. There's a biological reaction happening here. No matter how long I'm abstinent, this is always going to happen. I used to trick myself into thinking that I was just a heavy eater or a moderate eater. Um, you know, and then comes the surrender of like, nope, I, I can't, I can't stop, um, whether it's exercise or overeating or restricting. So um, my question is on page 25, it says the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And I find myself um, being very, you know, perfectionistic with, you know, doing these steps, being compliant, doing everything, um, you know, doing it as prescribed. Um, but there's a part of me that still feels like there that's like inauthentic. It's like, I'm doing it just to like, see if I can get more recovery or like, God will give me this great life if I do everything correctly. And that's not recovery. Like, you know, I know that. Um, at what point for you did really it like moved from your head to your heart and you really were like, cause you said you have content abstinence, I think is what you said. Um, and I really want that true freedom. And I know I'm not all, all the way through the steps yet, but if that makes any sense, could you speak to that? Beautiful question. Um, you know, step 12 says having had a spiritual awakening. So you haven't had it yet. You're not there yet. So that when we, when we get clear and we start working 10 and 11, that's when we, we get that we start to, to the beginning of that relationship, but we have to grow that relationship. Honestly, though, I didn't feel recovered until I started working with people. And I remember specifically going through Bill's story with someone and realizing I was talking in past tense. And I was like, holy crap, I'm recovered. This is not who I am anymore. 
So for me, even as 10 years in where I feel God is when I'm working with other people, I can't see God in me a lot of times, but I can see God in you mm. and I can see God in the, in the rooms. So to me, it's, it's, it's helping other people. And since it's ironic, cause both of you guys are in the same space in like eight and nine. And I, I remember one of my AA guys, um, fellows, he says that there's three places in the big book that they tell you you're going to pick up, which is true. It's four, nine and 12. So it's, he calls it the fourth step fade away, the ninth step trap door and the 12th, no, the ninth step no show and the 12th step trap door. So it makes sense to me. You're almost unblocked. So your ego is saying, I got to, I got to screw her up now, man. I got to screw her up now because she's almost free. And if she's free, I'm dead. So that's why I would just say, dig deeper into those steps. It's kind of like, um, I, I love to dance. And, uh, when I, for, I, I do West, I used, well, I used to do country Western dancing two-step and, and waltzing and thing. And in the beginning, you have to just really focus on the steps. You know, there's, you know, you have to count, you have to make sure that your body's in this way, you have to tighten your core. And then once you feel comfortable, all of a sudden the dance takes over, you know, and I consider like, you know, the big thing with a woman is you have to be able to take a lead. When I start to lead, things get screwed up. So what, what the 10, 11 does allows God to lead, but I have to be in good physical condition and know my steps in order to have that happen. And then what happens is it's, I'm not counting anymore. I'm enjoying the music and I'm enjoying the dance. So that to me is you're in, you're in the mechanics right now. So embrace those mechanics and what'll happen once you do them, it'll start to become an experience. Got it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm going to stop the recording for unrecorded chairs.